you know, our normal world or business world behaviors are, you know, I might have an idea and meet you at the water cooler to share it. And it's just natural tendency for you to think, is this a good idea or a bad idea and start judging it. And there is a process, sorry, there is a place for judging ideas in the innovation process. But too early on, it can end up killing ideas that maybe actually be quite good. So what we need to do is spend that normal judgment behavior so we can then understand the other person's ideas so we can then build on them. Because building on each other's ideas is really important. Otherwise, you only get those sort of one level incremental ideas. Helping CEOs and business leaders discover the energy to perform exceptional brilliance and positively impact the lives of those around them. Be inspired by world leaders, game-changing influencers, and next-level gurus. This is the Active CEO Podcast, where the ordinary don't belong. And now your host, CEO and founder of Energy to Perform, international speaker and leadership performance coach, Craig Johns. On this episode of the Active CEO podcast, I speak with the founder of Methodry, a design-led innovation author, strategist, and speaker, and the creator of Innovator's Playbook. He has a Bachelor of Commerce, Marketing and Management Honours, and a Master's in Marketing Brand Management from Victoria University of Wellington. His career has included brand, marketing, and manager roles at renowned companies such as Unilever, KPMG, DB Breweries, and Claire. When he is not working on creative design thinking with Methodry, he's an ambassador for Good Design Australia. I'm honored and privileged to introduce you to a curious problem solver who is passionate about human-centric design and experimentation and understands the importance of better people make better leaders. Nathan Baird. Nathan, welcome to the show. Thanks very much, Craig. Pleasure to be here. Uh, it's good to have another Kiwi on, on the show here today. So you grew up in Golden Bay at the top of the South Island in New Zealand. What kept you busy as a kid? Um, what kept me busy? Well, like most, most Kiwis, playing, playing rugby, trying to uh, become an All Black. Um, a dream that many of us didn't get to realize and just you know mucking around in the countryside climbing trees making huts going down the beach swimming in the rivers all sorts of you know just country stuff yeah so kiwis so that, that's a term for those international listeners that we use for new zealand people and and they are very known for their curiosity adventure and pioneering and so you talk about being outdoors, you know, what did you really love exploring uh, during those formative years? It was just the, the freedom to, you know, get on your, your push bike and just head off for the day. You know, you didn't have to be home until dinner time or, you know, if you ran out of food or money, you might come back for, for lunch. But we would, we would go off and we would go catching um, what we call crawlies, but we're in Australia yabbies, so little freshwater crayfish or go eeling. Or, you know, we'd head down to the beach, um, we'd go and play tennis, we'd do all sorts of stuff just with a group of mates on bikes. Yeah, brilliant. So, so when you were at school, were you kind of the curious kid who would ask lots of questions or were you the quiet one who was immersed in observing what was happening and seeing patterns in your mind to make sense of the world? Um, I was probably, 
like I did okay at school, but school was more about what happened in the breaks and after school and in the weekends. So I was actually always trying to find ways to, you know, make money and run my own little business and, and things like that. Oh, it's a bit of the entrepreneur. So what was the, you know, you're thinking about making money. What, what sort of things would you uh, be dealing with at that time? So they weren't necessarily highly innovative, but um, I was lucky enough to lived on a small farm and our parents would let us hand raise some calves. So every spring we'd raise those and then we'd, we'd sell them off as sort of like yearlings or um, sort of around that age. And then over summer, I my my grandparents had this amazing plum tree and we'd go down there and I'd hire my two older sisters um, and they would pick all the plums for me and I'd sit outside our front front gate and sell them to the tourists. It was quite a busy area over summer. Um, and then also in winter what I'd do is, some people may not like this, but I'd catch possums and, and sell them for their furs and did quite well out of that as well. Yeah, okay, wow. So, so you ventured across the Cook Strait uh, from the South Island into the North Island to study at Victoria University in Wellington. Um, you focused in the market, uh, marketing and brand management. You know, what was the driver for you behind delving into that world of marketing and brands? It was just, I was really passionate about, you know, how do you, how do you establish and grow brands to be successful? You know, how do you, how do you attract in more customers or consumers? You know, how do you, how do you satisfy people's needs? And that was, I guess, the, the real driver there. Hmm. So it's connection with, uh, with human beings and not just so much the product. And you've had more than 20 years of kind of hand-on experience and, you know, developing customer-centric approach to innovation. What did you learn from your early career working at Unilever, which is a, you know, a large global company in both New Zealand and the UK? Yes, I think that, I don't know, about the third largest, you know, fast-moving consumer goods company in the world. And Unilever had a very awesome marketing academy. And it was fantastic working for them both in New Zealand, but also in the UK and London. And uh, their training and, and marketing and brand management was fantastic. And I guess the key thing I learned was any idea you had, whether it was for a new product, whether it was for a brand campaign, whether it was for a sales promotion, pretty much any business activity, it had to have a consumer need and insight. So it wasn't going to be successful unless you had a consumer problem you're solving. And you could not get, you know, like we were at the start of an innovation process, we'd have to do an idea charter. So it was the first paper to go through Unilever's innovation process. You had to have a consumer insight identified in that or it wouldn't get through the gatekeepers, which were, you know, middle to senior management. And it was the same way all the way through that journey. So it was really drummed into us that, you know, consumer comes first. Mm. And so with regards to the, the consumer there, uh, coming first, you know, what sort of approaches would they be using um, to really uh, connect with the, with the customers and what their actual problems were? Yeah, good, good choice of words there um, in terms of connection. So they actually had a program called Consumer Connection. And we as brand managers and marketers, but actually, you know, right across every discipline in the organization because everybody was about being consumer-centric, would actually go out and spend time with the consumers. So you might go and spend time in their homes, 
you might cook with them, um, interviewing them and videoing them while they're cooking. You might go shopping with them. So you're really getting to experience their lives and how they use your products and what their needs are in those categories. Because mm. we see a lot of the time it happens in companies where we start making assumptions around what we think the consumers want. And is that one of the reasons why innovations and in startups fail so often? Yes, definitely. So we, um, or even worse, we don't even, you know, assume what the consumer wants. We just jump to the idea. Um, we just have a natural tendency to, to jump to the solution. We, we love making stuff. Um, and so often we'll, we'll jump to that solution or even building and make stuff. And we may not even factor in the consumer or customer until we launch it. Could be the first time they see it. And by then it's really too late. Because if it bombs, you've spent a lot of money. Um, if it's successful, then, you know, great. But then you'll continue to doing it that way and you'll bomb sooner or later and, and yeah, waste a lot of time and money. And so, you know, even when you're dealing with customers, right, so you might be, they might start talking around what their needs are. And, uh, sorry, sorry, they might start talking around what they want, but, you know, really what is their actual need? So how do you delve in deeper and make sure that you're actually getting to that root cause of the problem so you can solve that for them? Yeah, it's a, it's a good it's a good point, um, Craig. So they look they often don't know what they want, and if it's not to dismiss them, but you know if they're talking about solutions, what we really want to get down to, are, you know, what are their needs? What are those deeper needs, and what are their pain points? So it's often just having a chat or observing their life, um, and then like I said before, you know how they're using those products and things like that. But it also comes from you know asking really good questions getting down to the why behind things and you know why are those needs so hard to solve for them or, or why are they so important to them so you can get to those untapped needs so it, it also takes a lot of work so we do that that research with them but then we also do have to take it you know back to the office and really distill it and infer what are those those needs and pain points and insights and is this like kind of the, the real basis of design thinking? It is. It's the, it is. It's the core of design thinking is, is being really customer-centric. And it's then the foundation of all the work you do after that, having that customer problem that you've identified. There's a, there's a nice little quote. I think it's from Ash Mora, and he talks about falling in love with the problem, not the solution. Mm. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. I, I work in the speaking world and quite often you'll hear people talk lots about the problem, but that actually they struggle to really find clarity around the solution and it kind of it leaves them short when they've got something really good to say. What other, you know, we're talking about innovation here and, and around those making assumptions around what the consumer really wants. What other pieces of the innovation puzzle are often left out and why? The other piece that's another piece that's missed out is the creative phase and the ideation phase. So we've identified, you know, the consumer need that we want to focus on and identified that it's for a big enough market. But often what we do is then take the first good idea we have, rather than actually diving deep into that and coming up with lots of solutions and using creativity to come up with, you know, fresh, new, unique solutions, rather than just incremental ones. And I think part of the reason for that is also because we, in, in some places, we still don't rate creativity enough in business. You know, we see it as something that's too fluffy or too arty or it's, you know, just what one department does. It's just what the 
design department or the marketing department or, or what our, you know, advertising or creative agency does. And so, you know, with, you know, talking about that creativity and it kind of being siloed in, in many organizations and companies, what do you think are kind of the, the blockers that hold both individual and team creativity um, occurring more effectively inside a, a company or organization? I think one of the big ones, Craig, is, you know, as you, you'd, you'd appreciate and would have seen and experienced yourself is we all start out as being quite creative. And then, you know, we go through school and tertiary education, if you do that, and, and um, the corporate world or business world or government world that you work in. And we pretty much, whether it's consciously or not, get the creativity drummed out of us. You know, at school, we get taught one plus one equals two. And, you know, it's a certain type of education. So that's that's one of the biggest barriers is we then have this belief that we're not creative. So we spend a lot of time, you know, helping individuals and teams and organizations um, rediscover that creativity. It's definitely one of the big barriers. Hmm. And, and so you talk about um, some of the blockers being behaviors, the brain, state and spacey. Can you elaborate a bit more around what each one of those means? Definitely, definitely. So yeah, in terms of in terms of behaviours, so our you know our normal world or business world behaviours are, you know, I might have an idea and meet you at the water cooler to share it, and it's just natural tendency for you to think, is this a good idea or a bad idea, and start judging it. And there is a process, so there is a place for judging ideas in the innovation process, but too early on, it can end up killing ideas that maybe actually be quite good. So what we need to do is suspend that normal judgment behavior so we can then understand the other person's ideas so we can then build on them. Because building on each other's ideas is really important. Otherwise, you only get those sort of one-level incremental ideas. So on that behavior that you talk about building on each other's ideas, so what sort of questions are you asking to continue to build on those, uh, on those ideas? Well, the classic ones rather than yes, but is yes, and. The other one is, you know, what if we did this or, or what if that? Or tell me more about so you can understand it better. You know, you can't build on an idea unless you understand it. Hmm. And you and actually, and you can't understand an idea unless you suspend judgment. Yeah, brilliant. Brilliant. And, and so on to the brain. So brain, it's a little bit like the business world. You know, our brain's very analytical. It's very linear. It's a, it's a massive storage device. Um, if you're old enough to remember the filing cabinet, it's like a filing cabinet. Um, for younger people, I guess it's like the cloud. So you go through life and every experience you, ha you have, your brain stores, which is fantastic because in the morning, you know, every morning you have to get dressed. Imagine if you couldn't remember how to do that and, you know, we're quite creative in how you did that every morning. Um, it could lead to some funny situations, maybe even some embarrassing ones in terms of where you put your you know, your trousers or your skirt or your socks. So it is great that the brain works in this way. But what it also means, if you try and think of a new idea, it's really hard to, because it goes into that file in your brain and just brings up all the old ideas. So we have to trick it and stimulate it to come up with new ideas. And that's where De Bono's term lateral thinking comes from. Because essentially you're going laterally from one file in that filing cabinet or cloud into another one to get inspiration to come up with new ideas. And, and so how do you ensure that you can, 
you know, what sort of techniques or tips can people use in their, in their own life to, to make sure that they can think of it differently? So one of the ones I, I really like using is, you know, best in world or who else in the world faces this? So we were doing some work with Sainsbury's, the supermarket in the UK years, years ago. And they really wanted to own the positioning around freshness. So we're like, well, who else in the world does freshness? So, you know, you could go to a florist. They do freshness really well. You could go to, to a butcher. Um, we also went to a fishmonger. And we went to the fishmonger and we said, well, how do you do freshness? And they said, we only buy fish from day boats. We're like, well, what's a day boat? Well, they go out early every morning, catch their catch, and they bring it back every day and we buy that fish. Versus, you know, deep sea trawlers, which could go out for days, weeks, or even months at a time. And it's frozen fresh on board and there's nothing wrong with it, but it's not daily fresh. So then Sainsbury's, the team we're working with, took that idea of daily fresh and applied that across produce and bakery and started bakering every, baking every day and started only buying locally. And it, you know, resulted in a whole campaign using Jamie Oliver, you know, around um, local food miles and bake fresh every day and things like that. So it's actually about going away from your industry and seeing who else solves this sort of problem or need and then using that as inspiration to come up with new ideas for your industry or business. Yeah, brilliant. I like that. So, and, and then the third, uh, third one of those is state. How does that work? Yeah, so state is how you are at any given time. So, and that's how you are physically, you know, mentally, emotionally and spiritually, you know, whatever that means for you, um, which can just mean are you connected to your job and your team and your organisation or it can be, you know, um, a lot deeper than that. And if you're not in the right state for ideas, if you're too tense, if there's, you know, a lot of noise going on, you know, physically, if you're not um, in the right space, then you're going to struggle to have ideas. So just like with our behaviours, we need to change our behaviours in the business world to have ideas. We just need to make sure we're in the right state for having ideas. And that can be influenced um, a lot by one of the other barriers, which is um, environment or what, what physical space you're in. So if you actually have a think about it, you could probably write down when and where you were when you had your best ideas. So it might be that, you know, you're in a cafe and there's just that little bit of white noise in terms of the music going on. You know, you've had your first coffee for the day or maybe a second and you're just in that right vibe for having ideas. Whereas sitting at our um, workstations is all about getting stuff done, not necessarily coming up with ideas. So we go back there when we've got our ideas and need to make them happen. And, and so, you know, for a lot of people we know uh, say motion evokes emotion, um, music also evokes emotion. So is it finding things that get the emotion going to bring the creative genius or is it just finding, it, it doesn't really matter around, is, it, does it, is emotion the big part of it or is there something else going on to bring out that creative genius? It's definitely part of it. It's um, basically it's about being relaxed. If you, if you try and think too hard, you know, you're not going to have ideas. The brain isn't um, a muscle in that way, like, you know, other muscles in our body. Um, if you try and think too hard, then, you know, something that you, uh, you're not going to get the desired effect you want. You know, you're going to get a headache or something else. Um, and, you know, maybe you draw on your, you know, background. 
it's it's a different sort of muscle to you know our arms and legs and limbs mm. and the fourth one is space yeah so that's that physical environment i'm talking i was talking about so if you're if your state is stuck the best thing you can do is move um but the environment can probably have a bigger influence on your creativity than almost anything else. So it's about finding the space where you have ideas. But it also means in the business world, you know, when you're in the office, when we go back to the office, is there a space in the office to have ideas? Because we've all got our, our desks, whether it's hot desking or not, we've all got our desks and our laptops and our computers where we can get stuff done. But we want to have good ideas to make sure we're getting good stuff done. So we talked a lot there around our creativity and bringing up our own ideas. How do we then bring that into an organization and company uh, and so that successful innovation can occur? One of the, one of the key things, um, and I'll touch on leadership, but is, is really having a process and system for it. Because you don't want it to be relying just on random ideas or or the person who's really passionate about it is just going to keep pushing and pushing and pushing. You know, those people are really important. But you really need to industrialise innovation in your organisation. It needs to become part of it every day, like everything else is. Too often it's a, it's a tap that we turn on and off when it's a fad or, or you know, when we're doing well. Um, it's also really important to innovate when we're not doing so well. So one of the key things is, is having that, that process for innovation and the, the meetings and things that go with that. Um, and then that links in with leadership. So leadership should be involved in those meetings. So for, you know, weekly innovation gate process meetings and things like that. Hmm. Okay, yeah, interesting. And, and then obviously if we take something where we've come up with an innovative idea, you know, what are the key aspects of design thinking that take it from being just an idea and we, we're thinking about innovation to actually creating something that is innovative. Yeah, so you've got you've got all these ideas coming out of that ideation process or that creative process. Then you need to select which ones you take forward. And we and I really encourage, you know, picking ideas early on for potential. Feasibility, you know, can we make it and viability are really important too. Can we make money from it or if it's not for profit, make an impact. But if we bring those lenses in too soon, then often once again, we're left with those incremental ideas. So the first step is, you know, let, let's look at ideas for potential and how desirable they are to customers. But then what you want to do is to bring them to life quickly and cheaply so we can take them back to customers and test with them. Because through that previous ideation phase and also identifying those insights based off your customer research. You've actually been in the abstract world for, for a wee while, so we need to get it back to concrete, back in front of customers and get their feedback. So the best way to do that is just to bring it to life through a quick and cheap prototype. And this could be a, a paper prototype, which is like a storyboard on a piece of paper where, you know, it's like a comic strip. And here's the experience the customer goes through. And put that in front of the customer and get some feedback. And you may need to do a few iterations to validate it or even invalidate it and say, no, back to the drawing board. Hmm. Okay. Yeah, interesting. And then, you know, your, 
you start to experiment. So you're talking about your experience, uh, experimental, in, experimental phase there. And so uh, you talk about developing prototypes, etc. You know, what are kind of um, some key aspects of the experiment that are really important to understand, to know that you've actually got an innovation that can work? Yeah, definitely. So in terms of the process, you want to identify, you know, what, what part of the idea is it that you need to prototype? So what's your riskiest assumption there? Um, and then in, time, in terms of, in, yeah, in terms of um, how do you know it's working is to set up some learning goals before you go into the test. So it might be, you know, for each target customer group, you know, you need to talk to half a dozen people. And around about half a dozen people, you start to hear the same thing. So when you're using qualitative research like this, you know, you want to keep going until you don't hear anything new. So you need to set a number beforehand, not that it's quant, but how many of those people need to be saying yes for you to then take it forward? And if you don't do that beforehand, you know, you can imagine what happens. You go through the test and because you've got so much emotional buy-in to it, only one out of five or six are saying yes. And you go, oh, that's enough and I'll keep going. Mm. And, you, you know, you start pouring more good money down, down, the, down the hole. So you need to set those success criteria up front. Yeah, it's really important. And, you know, I love you. You've, uh, I've seen you've used a quote by Albert Einstein called, problems cannot be solved by thinking within the framework in which the problems were created. Uh, and, and you've started to talk about this a bit more already. How does, you know, for you, what does that really mean? And how can we use that to our advantage an innovation space. Yeah, it's really about bringing that that freshness in and that um, stimulus and provocation. So, like the best in world example I gave before, you know, and another another great one's like breaking the rules, and it's um, fairly well known. But Uber and Airbnb broke the rules of those industries. Um, if you look at one of the and when I say rules, it doesn't have to be regulations. It can be just the status quo. Mm. So if you go back not that long ago, a couple of years ago, if you booked a taxi, you had to wait outside the premise that you were in. So whether it's your home, you know, the office, the pub, the cafe or whatever. And you had to, you know, stand outside waiting for the taxi to arrive. So Uber, you know, challenged and broke that rule. Now, the technology is now available where you can do that, but you've now got the ETA tracking, tracking device so you can, you know, stay in your house, keep warm if it's raining outside or keep dry and wait till that roll uh, arrives. So breaking the rules is, is one, of the, one of the key ways of doing that. Um, you know, we can use nature to, for inspiration. So, you know, a very classic example is the Swiss engineer who invented Velcro. He wanted to find a new way of fastening shirts other than buttons. And so his brain was primed with solving that problem. And then he noticed after walking in the fields or forest one day with his dog, all the burrs or hookweeds stuck to the fur on his dog and stuck to the socks um, on his feet. And if you look at Velcro, you know, it's got a, a loop and a hook. And that's where his inspiration came from. So it's always about, you know, looking for inspiration, as um, Einstein said, from outside the problem space. Mm. Brilliant. Brilliant. And, and you've recently launched a book called Innovators Playbook. What's it, how, how did the Innovators Playbook come about? And, and for those who haven't seen it yet, what, what, is it, what does it dive into? 
Yeah, so it was a, it was a, um, it was a, you know, a passion project and a, and a business project. The, the passion was um, to, you know, share my view. And it's not just my view, you know, I've, like I said, I've been working in the space for 20 years. So I've worked with a lot of great people, a lot of great organisations and teams. And so it's just about sharing, you know, here's a method for innovating that, you know, is proven to work. No, you don't get success every time because no one does an innovation, but here's how you can um, improve that. And then it's, it's you know, also one of those things to do, um, don't necessarily talk about bucket lists, but, you know, to, to write a book was a, it was a big goal and a, a pretty neat achievement. And then, yeah, and what it does for people, what it really is taking that customer-centric and design-led approach to innovation and why that is because, you know, um, we're still not doing innovation really well. We're still, you know, failing, like, depending who you talk to, um, Clayton Christensen, who um, sadly passed away recently, talked about only um, 5% of innovation succeed or 95% fail. Um, Eric Reese, who's a bit of a startup guru, talks about, you know, most startups failing. Um, so we really need to improve, improve that number, those stats. And then the main reason they fail is because we don't do the upfront work well enough. And by upfront work, you know, it's everything from kicking off the project up until the business case stage. We're quite good, actually, at the back end of innovation in terms of implementing um, innovation when we've got a good idea that meets a need, but we're not very good at identifying that need, coming up with new ideas, and then validating that that's a desirable, feasible, viable idea. So, so when people get the innovators playbook, is it something that you read from start to finish, or can they go into certain sections and and just take that piece of information? How does it work? Yeah. So look at. Um, I think it's quite an easy read. There's obviously um, no ex accent in it, so that makes it easier for people who can't keep up with the Kiwi accent. Um, and it's, it's you know, I'm, I'm giving away everything in the book. Here's how you can go from, you know, A to Z in terms of innovation. But like you said, you can jump in. You know, if you need to get better at creative creativity and ideation, you can jump into that stage. Or if you've mastered design thinking and need to get better at experimentation you can jump into the last couple of chapters and and you know really flesh out your skills in, in that area and so do you think this is a book that that's more targeted towards your ceos or it doesn't matter what level of organization you're at um, and does it apply to other areas in life as well yeah look it's i think it's really for um you know a number of a number of people so you know, it's a good a good manual and a roadmap for CEOs, and then for for team leaders and teams, it's a really good toolkit that they can use and, and really go a lot deeper um, and use it on a daily basis on their projects. Um, what was the other question, so correct? Um, yeah, and can it use? You know, how, you know, we're obviously talking lots about working inside a company, but how does it does the innovators playbook apply, say, for a sports team or? in some other aspects in life. Yeah, good, good point. And if, if I can start actually also with an organization. So obviously it applies to anyone who's coming up with new products and services and experiences, but you know, a lot of um, innovation comes from new business models, internal processes and systems, 
So you could definitely use it, you know, whether you're in the HR team or IT and technology as well. So you could use it to redesign, redesign your onboarding process. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I do a lot of work in government and, you know, they're doing a lot of work, you know, around the citizen and um, social policies and things like that. And yes, definitely in sport. I mean, I'm lucky enough to do um, quite a bit of work over the years with the Australian Institute of Sport and, you know, training design thinking or innovative thinking into, you know, up and coming coaches, coaches, you know, high performance directors and, you know, R&D or scientist teams as well. Yeah, brilliant. That's really good. And we've spoken about leaders quite a bit throughout the, the podcast so far. And I know you, you really resonate with better people make better leaders and the importance of people being um, human and being humble. So what do you think is the, is the one most important attribute of being a leader? Well, I think you, you touch on it there. It's, it's about being, um, being human, being, being a person. Um, and the, the people you're leading are, are people too. And just because you're a leader doesn't give you any um, God-given right to be superior or anything else. And, you know, leadership's actually a responsibility. You know, how do you, how do you help those people and um, get the most out of them? But in terms of, get, you know, helping them get the most out of themselves so they're high-performing but in an enjoyable way. Mm. Yeah, and I think that's important, that last word they're enjoying and we sometimes forget, right, that we forget that the, the greatest recruitment and retention tool in the world is enjoyment. So how do you make what you do fun and enjoyable and that people are connected to is so important. From a design thinking perspective, what are some of the great companies around the world at the moment that you're seeing that are doing this really, really well? Companies that are doing design thinking really, really well. Yeah, from a leadership point of view. Yeah, definitely. Um, look, I think a lot of the, um, you know, fast-moving consumer good companies like, you know, the Unilevers and the Procter & Gambles and that, you know, they, they're still doing it well. You know, they're, they're adapting and evolving. Um, Procter & Gamble, you know, had a great CEO for a number of years, A.G. Lafley, um, who's also written some books. Um, I think one of his better ones is, um, or, you know, around this area, I should say, is what's called Game Changer. And he integrated design into the whole organisation. So when you asked me before around, you know, how do you make an organisation more innovative? So they integrated this, you know, design-led approach to innovation into the whole operating model. And, you know, so they've been doing very well on this. And look, every organisation's got its pros and cons and makes mistakes. Unilever also been fantastic in the space and, you know, really striving to become a far more sustainable organisation in terms of the environment and doing, a, you know, a lot around that space. And I think, you know, being a leader in that space because they can have such a, a big impact on the world in that space as well. Yeah, brilliant. And so for you, you know, obviously, you know, if you're going into different companies and helping them with their design thinking and, and bringing out the curiosity so how do you ensure that you manage your energy and performance so that you can lead your team in the best possible manner? Yeah, it's a, it's, it's a good point. And we do a lot of, you know, run a lot of workshops. So a lot of facilitation and training and, um, 
you know, pre-COVID that would be, you know, on your feet and, and a, um, at the front of the room or in a room with a group of people. And that, that's always really tiring. And then since COVID, it's, you know, we've, we've adapted and gone virtual and remote, um, which has been a fantastic experience, but it's actually even more tiring. Um, you still get the buzz, but it's, you know, what you could do in a day is you can probably only now achieve um, in half a day it's tiring for the participants as well. So for me, it's, you know, starting off the day well, getting, getting in some exercise. Um, I'm keen cyclist, love getting, getting out on the bike. Um, normally that's the, the road bike, but also the mountain bike when I can. And if I'm, not, if I'm not doing that, then it's always, you know, some stretching, you know, going for a walk. Uh, we've got a dog, which is, you know, a great excuse or driver to get out and uh, get some exercise for him as well. So that's normally how I kick off the day. And then I don't know if it's from being a facilitator or even that country background, you know, you, you have smoko breaks, um, which isn't necessarily about having a cigarette, but it was about um, having a break in the morning and the afternoon. And so in workshops, we'll never run a session for more than two hours without a break. So I try and get the same rules, even if I'm just working in the home studio. You know, making sure I'm having a break mid-morning and mid-afternoon because otherwise you you definitely start fading. Yeah. Yeah, it's brilliant. I really like that. So we all know smart people have great answers, but the most successful people ask great questions. When was the last time you did something for the first time? Um, I guess this year there's been a, it's a, probably a bit of a cop-out, Craig, but there's been a lot of firsts, you know, and so some of them haven't all been, you know, driven by me. Some of them have been forced, forced on us. But I think the, the big first for me this year has really been taking our offering online mm. and, you know, taking workshop facilitation and training online, making it fully virtual and, and remote. And, and that's actually been really exciting. You know, it's forced us to adapt. It's, you know, forced us to innovate. What's the saying? Um, necessity is the mother of all innovation. And look, I've been really pleased how it's turned out, and not just in terms of um, the quality of our outputs and deliverable, but the quality of the platforms out there. Hmm. So if, if you want an example, we did this program from Macquarie University with their incubator. They wanted to offer a design thinking program for, for students. So like an extracurricular activity. Um, so we went in and we videoed what would normally be the front of the room stuff. So it was all pre-recorded and took that flipped learning approach so students could watch all the, let's call it the theory up front. So then when they came to the workshops, which were then online using Zoom and Miro, they were ready to go. And so we'd just jump into stuff with them. And look, Zoom worked really well with the breakout rooms and things like that. And I know there's other platforms out there as well. And then, you know, our normal physical whiteboards, then they were replaced by, by Miro, which is, you know, a fantastic virtual whiteboarding solution. And I know there's Mural as well. And yeah, really, really pleased with um, the quality and the deliverable and, and the feedback from the participants has been, has been fantastic as well. And we've, you know, taken that into the corporate environment too and had, had great feedback there as well. Yeah, brilliant, well done. What is the one question that you would love to solve? Um, I think 
what, what my passion is really about is helping teams and organisations, you know, be more innovative and be more enjoying, you know, enjoyable. You know, we spend a lot of time at work and, and life's too short not to be having fun. And just because you're having fun doesn't mean you're not serious. And so I think that the two really work together being creative, innovative and, you know, having a lot of fun. So if I can help some more teams do that, then I'll be pretty happy. Yes, and I like that. We need people to be more happier in this world. For you, what is your definition of living an extraordinary life? Good, good question. Um, there's probably, there's probably you know, a few things in there. Um, if I'm allowed, sort of three, three areas. So, helping others. So that that means a lot to me. Um, you know, we we all want to make an impact in the world, and so I love helping others. And whether that's through, you know, training, you know, mentoring or coaching, um, or the or helping them be more innovative. And you, you get a real buzz every now and then. You get a, you know, you get an email or a text or something from a past participant saying, you know, how you really made an impact on their life or changed their life. And then that's pretty cool. And so I think that's linked to, I mean, I'm not, I'm not a religious person, but making sure that you use your God-given talent. So, you know, I am a big believer and we've all got these talents um, you know, whether you've got one, you know, superpower or whatever, I'm not sure, but you've been given these these talents and I think it's, you have a responsibility to use it and, and you know, use it to your best ability to, to make a positive impact. Um, for some of us, that's on the sports field. For some of us, that's in the business world. Um, some of us, you know, that's in, in the social society world and other areas as well. And then I think to help you keep all that going, the, the third one, for me, it is freshness, staying fresh. So, you know, I love learning new things, exploring, you know, new areas, um, keeping fresh on an everyday basis. We touched on that, you know, getting out for a bike ride and things like that. You you can't be there to serve other people unless you're looking after yourself and, and staying fresh as well. And I think that's, that's really important. Staying fresh, uh, love it. Very, very good. So you've shared some really good insights into design thinking and innovation and creativity. So how can people learn more about what you do and what is the best way for people to connect with you? Yeah, so um, they can they can grab a copy of the book, which they can see on my website at www.methodry.com. Um, I'm also on LinkedIn, so yeah, more than happy to people to connect on LinkedIn. Um, we can have a chat there and, you know, we can these days chat to anyone in the world on Zoom or Skype or anything like that. And uh, my email is Nathan at methodry.com. Excellent. So we'll pop those links in the show notes so people can find them a lot easier as well. Nathan, it's been an absolute pleasure speaking with you today um, to, to learn about kind of your explore, um, exploratory life as a kid and, and just getting outside in nature and just having a bit of fun. And, you know, as long as there was still sunlight, you're out exploring somewhere to then delving into that world of creativity and innovation through uh, design thinking and working with some of the big companies around the world and sharing some of those insights into, you know, what makes a Unilever such a, a creative and innovative company um, thinking around you know the importance of a leader thinking about people first and being hum and having humility as well to grasping the simple 
aspects of innovation that we quite often forget and is kind of our nemesis to why companies don't move forward or may fold and to, to just put it in a really simple way. So just kind of recommend to everyone out there, you know, check out Innovators Playbook and the work that Nathan is doing. Um, just really appreciate um, you sharing today and giving to people um, some wonderful insights. So Nathan, thank you very much. Thanks very much, Craig, it was a pleasure. Thank you for listening to an awesome conversation with Nathan Baird, Innovators Playbook for Leaders on the Active CEO Podcast. Energy is like money. If you spend it rather than invest, you will end up with an out of control debt. Do you have an energy budget? How do you balance putting energy in your bank versus the energy that you spend and withdraw from your bank? You know what it's like to have no money in the bank. It's tough, right? It's real challenging. And it's the same if you have no energy left in the tank. So you have full control of your energy budget. And it's important as a leader because your energy is contagious. So if you have low energy, it will flow on through your organization or flow on through your team. If you have high energy, it will resonate through your team. So what are you doing in 2021 to ensure that you're, you're investing your energy more than you're spending it and that your energy budget is thriving? If you want to learn more about how you can develop your own energy budget and ensure that your investments are greater than your spending, then reach out and contact me at craig at energytoperform.com or click on the contact page of craigjohns.com.au website. And together, we can help you have more energy in your life and ensure that the energy you're creating is investing in the energy for your future. Thank you very much for listening today. It's been a great conversation. I am Craig Johns. This is the Active CEO Podcast with Ordinary Don't Belong. Join the Active CEO movement by visiting www.nrgtoperform.com. That's nrg2perform.com. Share this podcast on LinkedIn and be sure to tag in NRG to perform. Leave a review on iTunes. Drop us a line with your feedback and questions and connect with us on the NRG to perform Facebook and Instagram pages. Be sure to check out the next Active CEO podcast where the ordinary don't belong.